Welcome to Elmo's Road Podcast. This is Elmo Odor Jr., your host. And I am with uh, Steven Spears. He is from uh, the Chicago area in, United, in the United States. And he lives in Bloomington. He is 54 years old. And uh, in his life, he has uh, been a musician for 24 years, a truck driver for 10 years. And before the, all of that, he went to a Bible school. But currently, I think that he holds a very, very uh, interesting worldview because of he, he actually loves philosophy and uh, a lot of topics that I think would be, we would be interested in. So, uh, Stephen, can you introduce yourself? And I would like you to answer the question. Um, so, what is your definition of God? Uh, my definition of God is um, beyond the concept of entity a thing or an object to something that is all-encompassing. If God is truly infinite, then uh, here, a one, another way of putting it would be some people like to say God is everything, or you could say everything is God. It seems like it's the same statement, but it's a different, different emphasis. I, I, I agree with both of them. Um, like the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Uh, and I, I would have loved to have been able to meet the guy and ask him what he really thought, but he said to the people at Athens um, that it is within God that we live and move and have our being. In other words, there is no separation. We are within God that we live and move and have our being. Uh, the separation, if there is any separation, is an illusion on our part. As as the edge goes, uh, if you feel apart from God, guess who moved? Uh, it, my, my idea has a label. There's a term for it. It's monism. This is what Albert Einstein believed, and he was heavily influenced by a, a philosopher, a pre-enlightenment philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. And Spinoza, Spinoza was excommunicated from the synagogue in Denmark because he had this idea that, that nature and God are the same. They're not separate. And I, I have to agree with that. I, I can't be an atheist because it's just too... Um, it's too um, sterile. It, 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 it robs life of meaning to do... But at the same time, I, I don't think it's necessary to have a concept of God as a thing or an object that we have to argue for or against. Yeah, if it's going to be, if you're going to say that there's a God and God is infinite, then you have to also accept the fact that you have no idea what God is really like, and you never will, not with this brain. Uh, I actually uh, completely agree with what you've said. Uh, I think we are in parallels when it comes to the idea that we would never be able to understand the concept of God, right? And if there and that, um, but how does monism work? I've met on uh, other monists as well. Uh, well, I I go back to try to base everything, all my opinions, on, on first principles. You know, this, as the saying goes, I think it came from Aristotle. Uh, all things can be deduced from first principles. Uh, the first principle for existence, as far as we know, is the structure of an atom. 
and there's different ways that you can look at this. There's the particle aspect of atoms, and then there's the, the, the field or the energy aspect of atoms. And um, with regard to the, the motion of particles, it, an experiment can be set up to determine what the speed of a particle is within the atom, but then you don't know what its location is. Or you can set up an experiment to find out what its location is, but then you don't know what its, its speed is. This is, uh, there's this ambivalence or uh, paradox about particles and waves. Sometimes it seems like it's all waves, sometimes it, thinks it looks like it's particles, and it depends on how you measure. And that seems to imply that we are taking part in, in the way that the, that the atom behaves. So we are connecting to it. There's, it's quantum entanglement. Um, this is how it was explained to me by a friend of mine who has a master's degree in electronic engineering from California Tech which is one of the premier engineering schools. Yeah, I'm, I think he's referring ref, referring to the double slit experiment, right? Where the, mm -hmm, where directly observing the phenomenon uh, affects the affects the outcome, but the pro the problem is that um, where does the change occur? Is it when we observe it in, on live video or uh, and it, it's very interesting to to uh, delve into this and it, uh, it's actually hum it humbles us to know that uh, we, we know nothing of how quantum mechanics actually w works you know and yeah but um, this is uh, why that a lot of, of atheists would say then um, uh, then theists will all continue to argue the god of gaps you know that oh this is god because we, we can't explain it but uh, they seem to have a confidence that uh, ultimately everything can ex be explained naturally. Um, the, well, the approach that I like to take is that both the atheist and the theist are starting with an unspoken uh, presupposition, a premise that, that God is a thing or an object. If you take that away or, st or go back and, and start without that premise, then there really isn't anything to argue about whether or, God, whether or not God exists. You could say God is, if you say God is existence or God is the ground of all existence, then you have a different uh, equation. And it's not something that you necessarily can argue for or against because obviously existence is. Uh, we are experiencing it. If God is truly omnipresent, then this is the conclusion you will arrive at. God is omnipresent inside of every atom. In Hebrews chapter 1, if you believe the Apostle Paul wrote it, which I think is the accurate, um, he had a motivation for writing it and, and a motivation for hiding his identity. In Hebrews chapter 1, he's, he uses this verb that is uh, present tense and active, which is that it, all things are being made manifest by the power of his word. Word, of course, is a figure of speech or a, a metaphor. It's not really a word, but all things, that every subatomic particle is being made manifest as we speak now by the power of God. So there's interaction in existence. 
in other words, being, being is not being is is an uh, an active verb. It's not, and it and it's it is active by the presence of God. But 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 what I understand here is that um, um, then why are you linking biblical texts or scripture to uh, your definition of God? Uh, I, I don't see a need to uh, if you would define God as the ground of existence or nature then I think there's no need to reference any biblical scripture but these, I, 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 it, and it isn't necessarily an appeal to authority it's more an appeal to what is common to a common understanding available to everyone and I, and I think that the literature shows this that the Bible is being the tradition of Western culture and cultures around the planet uh, is a helpful anchor for people. It shows that it isn't, I'm not presenting something new. It's not completely original with me. It wasn't original with Spinoza. The first recorded philosopher in history was a guy named Thales of Miletus. And he was the first modest. He had this idea before Spinoza. And you could, you could say that, that Paul had the same idea as well, but he just didn't articulate it in the same way. But, but how you're defining God, it seems to me that there is no reason to call it God, right? Because uh, in our language... Uh, we uh, we attach the idea of the the term their definite the term God or word God for describing a sentient being that ha that in relation to m the meaning and purpose of my life and to answer the philosophical questions right and inquiries. So if you would define God in a naturalistic explanation, like let's like saying that God is the universe. Then okay, but there isn't. There's no need to call it God. Then you could just say the universe is the universe. It's, as Albert Einstein said, it's all one field of energy. There is no room in this new kind of physics for both matter and field. That is the field of energy. For the field is the only reality. Everything is energy. It's all energy, and it's all one field. Yeah, but then why call it God? I think it's just it, it's an anchor, a cultural anchor that people can connect with, but. Uh, like anything, or as um, Eckhart Tolle likes to say, the word is just a pointer, and the word points to a concept, and the concept is what's important, not the word. Yeah, but the the problem here is that um, I see no difference between your view and any uh, naturalist uh, worldview, because if God is simply nature. And it's not sentient. It's not something you can talk to and pray to, or or has interacted with the earth in terms of religious experiences and phenomena and miracles. And I don't think it's necessary to call it the God, because it, in terms of what you mean by pointing to a concept, it only leads to more confusion. But, but so I why why that's why the, well, I, the need to call something God? You could call it consciousness. It's simply an excuse to call. The, um, you could you could call it the will to power. Uh, as Schopenhauer did. Uh, you could you could you could just call it energy. 
the universal energy. Um, uh, you made a, a statement earlier, just just a moment ago, about um, consciousness being distinct from uh, nature, and I don't. I'm not sure. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was something sounded like something to that effect. And that's a different conception than than my position. I I think that because we are experiencing consciousness right now at this moment, having a conversation, and your consciousness is connecting to mine, that consciousness is also rooted in nature. It emerges from nature. It's connected to nature, and therefore. I, I would say that nature has an innate consciousness or a tendency towards consciousness built into it. Go, you can argue, easily argue, it goes all the way down. To the yeah, I completely level. agree. So in a way that because uh, when it comes to God, uh, you're referring to a concept of uh, everything that everything is in in some way conscious, right? So pans psychism. I haven't heard that term, but I'm going to use that from now on. Yeah. Everything, every hand, every, it's elemental on, on, on some levels. And of course, in our, it, the experience that we are having is a flowering of consciousness that is unlike anything that this world has, has seen before, experienced before. And it might evolve into something else. I, I think uh, some of us get a taste of it from time to time when our ego kind of evaporates and we just become aware of everything being connected. Okay, I, I completely understand uh, where your uh, your your view now that yeah, I completely understand that but it's simply that through our biological uh, evolution we have uh, been able to act to to create a, some sort of ego by which we can call ourselves and seem that uh, to be uh, uh, to make it an illusion that we are separate from the consciousness of the universe or what what you would call god yes and and we often confuse our sense of identity or uh, with this concentration of um, biological phenomenon electrochemical phenomenon uh, when in fact our identity doesn't begin and end with this concentration of biological phenomenon it expands Outwards, for example, um, any any person you could take, say this person has a historical identity, they have an educational identity, they have an ethnic identity, they have a biological identity, they have a, a geological, a geographic identity, they have a planetary identity, a, a galaxial identity and a universal identity and it just keeps expanding outwards and all of these facets come together to create you or to um, to form the concept of you but it doesn't begin and end with this, this bag of skin as Alan Watts used to like to say you're not an ego or a, a ghost a soul trapped inside of a bag of skin it's much more than that okay it's really interesting that I've never uh, had it uh, had it described to me in this way okay and I, I this is um, okay it's really uh, awesome talking to you Stephen about this and I would like to uh, ask you a question then being a monist how does that affect your behavior in your daily life uh, f compared to previous uh, 
approaches like cr- being an atheist or Christian? What What's the difference to when you're oh, a monist? From time to time, I'm able to snap out of, and sometimes I can do it, do it at will, where I snap out of this uh, ego-centered identity, which is still there. It doesn't just disappear. It just, there's a what Shin Sen Young refers to as a foreground background reversal. Right now, my ego is in the foreground. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, and I'm thinking about this experience. But I could also think about how this is just something that's naturally occurring, and it isn't me that is making this happen. It's a it's an extraordinarily complex phenomenon that I can, I can lightly concentrate on and concentrate on other things as well and, and flow with the experience rather than thinking of it as an either-or proposition where you're part of it and I'm part of it and there's a conversation, you speak, I speak. Um, I'm paying attention or I'm not paying attention. It goes beyond the binary into something that is, is more holistic and, and I when I identify with the holistic, and see, that's me too. It's not. It's not just me inside uh, this voice inside of my head, um, wondering and, and thinking and plotting. I can also, at the same time, feel the little uh, vibration in my foot right now because it's tingling for some reason. I don't know why, but I can pay attention. You know, it's like a loose kind of attention, like a, like somebody who's if, if you've ever had the experience of, let's say, for example, hunting, and you're walking through the woods, and you don't, you're not, you're, you're listening for different kinds of sounds, but not any one sound in particular, and you become open to all sensory input at the same time. You're, there's, uh, you're opening your visual experience, and you're opening your auditory experience so that everything is 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 given equal consideration, and then the the ego takes a backseat. Ego, all kind of like the volume is turned down on the ego, and you're not paying attention to the voice in your head. You're 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 one with nature, experientially as well as intellectually. Wow, that's really interesting, and I would like to break that down because um, uh, I, 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 it's hard to imagine for me because I I've never uh, approached it that way. And okay, um, so I would like to start when when you say that it's not binary. Uh, can you uh, d- uh, elaborate? Because it's really hard for me to understand right now, and I, I w- really want to learn. I think in terms of, uh, I, I think it's it's probably the most primitive of concepts is that there's uh, that that which is you know what it's it, there's there's zeros and ones. There's there's a thing as the light is on or the light is off. There's a male, a female, night and day, hot, cold, wet, dry, uh, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, whatever. Uh, plant life, um, animal life, flora and fauna. All biological taxonomy begins with this binary description. Um, positive and negative. Down on the subatomic level, um, but there's an interaction, and there's not a strict separation. 
and and maybe uh, you know, Alan Watts talked about this with regard to uh, particles and waves. So he said uh, that there's it's also possible that we could talk about these things as waveicles uh, instead of waves and particles. Um, But uh, so there, uh, when you expand the frame, it's it, it, it no longer it, you know trying to go beyond the binary. You see the relationship, the yin and yang, in the interplay between them. And in the yin and yang symbol, there's two dots showing that there's a little bit of the yang in the yin, and there's a little bit of the yin in the yang. And they're, they're although they're distinct, they're also kind of one. They're all they're not only one in the sense that there's an interplay, but also one in the sense that they're, the, the contrast is an illusion. Okay, that, okay, that just blew my mind, but okay. Um, so, um, but where did you draw your conclusions that ev nothing, is, nothing is binary, that everything is, uh, as you said, yin and yang? Um, how did Alan Watts uh, um, if conclude you, that? His, one of his best books is called The, the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. Uh, he, he talks about these things uh, in regard to a lot of, uses a lot of different examples and how one thing is defined by its opposite. So that you don't have the opposite unless there's something contrary to it to define it. There is no positive if there is no negative. One defines the other. And, and in that respect, they're actually kind of the same thing. So you take one component away and you have nothing. If, if like for example, when there's no, you, you, uh, for life, for example, uh, Eckhart Tolle said that the opposite of life is not death because life doesn't have an opposite. Life just is. The opposite of life is 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 birth, birth perhaps, but not. Uh, I'm 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 probably misquoting him. It's been a while. It's okay. Okay, and then um. So in terms of let's say morality. Uh, as you said, there's there's really no evil or good. It, yeah, and so how 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 does that uh, affect your morality in terms of how you behave uh, directly in terms of how you measure what is morality or ethics? I prefer the the term ethics because it doesn't have a religious connotation. I, um, there's a range of of possibilities, and I try to stay within the range. In the range, the range is um, always keeping in mind or, or framing the possibility of what kind of world do I want to live in. I, I don't kill anybody because I don't want to live in a world where people are going around killing each other. And I don't and, and I don't want to get in trouble too, but that's another aspect to it. Um, but on, on the way that I regard other people, the way that I talk to other people is based entirely upon what I expect uh, um, what kind of world I want to live in and what I would expect in return. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or as Confucius put it, do not do to others what you would, would not want them to do to you. Um, 
in Immanuel Kant's theory, the uh, categorical imperative, you try to look at it from the viewpoint of what would it be like if everybody did fill in the blank? What would it be like if nobody did fill in the blank? Uh, that variable x or not x. And then you have a sense of, of what is a good ethic or a bad ethic, but you won't find it in nature. Um, as uh, the philosopher David Hume explained in the is odd gap that there is no logical way that you can go from the way things are in nature to the way things ought to be in a utopia. That in other words, there is not nothing inherently good or evil in the structure of nature. It's a human construct, um, but that doesn't uh, necessarily negate it. Just because it's a human construct, it's uh, it adds uh, a level of of happiness and comfort in our lives, but it's not necessarily utilitarian because it's a range of possibilities. I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine regarding the trolley experiment, the thought experiment of the trolley. You know this one? Yeah, was it, what would you do? Uh, and, and I thought about this one aspect of the trolley thought experiment that people don't often consider, and that is what happens afterwards? What is your what is your uh, emotional state? Whether you choose to kill the one uh, or you do nothing and three die, how do you feel about it? And my position is I don't feel guilt either way. And I, I think this is some another aspect that isn't that isn't presented in the in the thought experiment, but it should be. Not just what would you do. Util, in a utilitarian fashion, which is better to have one person die or three people die, or do you know to do something or to not do something? But also, how do you think you would feel about it afterwards? And I have to say, I wouldn't feel guilty either way, because if I do nothing, that's not my responsibility, and I don't feel guilty for it because it, it's a law. It's you know it's something. That, it was a natural event. If I do something, which is still a natural event because I'm an organism, um, I have the equation of one versus three, and so I don't feel guilty there either. So for me, it's not really a dilemma. Does that make sense? It's been a long time since I've thought about determinism. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we we have to act as if free will is a real thing, whether it is or it isn't, um, because it's built into our language, and it's it's the way reality presents itself to us, and and therefore it's useful. Uh, but I know that on the neuroscientific level, there really isn't such a thing as free will. There's a there's a gap between the firing of a neuron and an action that results from the firing of the neuron or neurons. 
you've heard of this before, haven't you? Uh, yeah, well, I, I got this information primarily from Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist. But I had heard about it before he, he uh, posted a video on YouTube about this. Uh, if you go to Big Think and put in free will, that Sam Harris's video comes up where he describes this phenomenon where if if you examine closely the firing of neurons in the brain and then the resulting actions you can see that a person there's a mental activity takes place before a physical activity and there's a gap of time between those two things and because of that you can only come to one conclusion and that is that there really isn't free will. Well, okay, so um, in terms of accountability then, um, no human is actually accountable for any crimes, but uh, re rehabilitation and, uh, and life sentences and the death penalty are simply uh, ways society works to keep yes, the harmony. Uh, uh, because right? the way reality presents itself to us and in, in what is the... Uh, practical understanding of it we have to act practically so there is a, there is room for pragmatism but at the same time there's also room for determinism uh, it, it might not necessarily be a Newtonian billiard ball kind of new determinism but nevertheless uh, there is a disparity in the in, in the way uh, the motor co cortex operates and controls our physical activity. So, yeah, unfortunately, there has to be crime and punishment. Okay, so um, I would like to ask you about what you said earlier, free will. Oh, oh wait, yeah, free will. You said that we have to live as if we have free will because ultimately we are determined, right? So, but... Uh, as you said also um be knowing that it is part of your nature um you seem to suggest that any outcome coming from my nature uh, is in in which it could be any action either i die out of 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 suicide or die of or kill or any criminal action or evil behavior in terms of social constructs I would not really feel any guilt because it is it came out naturally because everything is that occurs is natural. So in terms of that, um, why do, does there arise a need to live as if one has free will? It seems that you have uh, a, given a hierarchy by which it is better to live live as if you have free will. Than it is just to go on with life, feel, feel knowing that you everything is determined. Well, it, it's probably uh, connected in some way to something like the double slit experiment. You know, it appears that there's one aspect to it where something seems to be behaving like a particle, and another aspect of it where it seems to be behaving of like a wave, and and then you're faced with an, a polarity, an either or. Uh, interpretation. Is there free will? Uh, yeah, it appears that there is. Um, 
in in one aspect. Uh, do we have an ego? In yeah, in one aspect, but also in another aspect, it's a complete illusion. Uh, and this is this is something, for example, that uh, there's a neuroscientist and philosopher named Thomas Metzinger who wrote a book called The Ego Tunnel, and he shows through several different experiments and thought experiments how the ego is an illusion generated by the brain. Uh, and one of the experiments is the rubber hand experiment, where you place a rubber hand in front of the participant on a table, and you have the real hand placed outside of their vision uh, behind a curtain. And somebody comes and strokes both the rubber hand and the real hand with a brush at the same time. And then they take away the brush from the real hand, and suddenly the brain transfers sensation to the rubber hand as if the rubber hand actually had neurons, but it doesn't. Um, and this is also a phenomenon that occurs with VR goggles. If you, if you have a presentation of yourself in the field of your vision while you're wearing the VR goggles, the false self, your brain can transfer sensation to the false self in such that if somebody comes to and um, touches the back of the false self in the field of vision with the VR goggles, you will feel it, even though the false self doesn't have any neurons. Your brain automatically does it. And this serves to indicate, according to Thomas Metzinger, uh, the author of The Ego Tunnel, that the ego is an illusion that we create. It's like a, an aperture, a window that we look through, um, and and it has an illusion of reality, but it isn't. So the illusion is real, but it's still just an illusion. In this sense, I act as if the illusion is real, but I also know that it's an illusion. I don't have, in his terms, in his words, this is his quote verbatim, biological organisms do not have selfhood. It's like phantom limb syndrome when a soldier loses an arm and they're lying in the hospital waking up from surgery. They still feel as if they have an arm. As far as their brain is concerned, that arm is still real and it, and it feels pleasure and it feels pain, but it's not there. It's an illusion generated by the brain. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that when you were talking about uh, that earlier. But yes, uh, okay, that is really interesting. So then, for knowing, uh, I would like to ask you, knowing that the ego is some sort of aperture that we simply create, or an illusion, um, how how does that uh, change or affect your behavior in in life it as well? Give me some emotional distance from the events of life. Um, and I think it's it's also something that I need to grow with. I think I, this is seems to be the pattern with all human beings is that we grow spiritually, if for lack of a better term. And over the course of time, if we mature properly, we get an expanded sense of selfhood. And it's no longer just about me and my immediate sensory experience, but everything that is connected to my sensory experience, which defines me as, as that which 
in the, uh, that which is not me defines me in the same way that positive defines negative and negative defines positive. It has a binary quality, but the, the binary quality is, is an illusion. The truth is it's just one thing. It's monistic. Universe is one, one, one event. Time is an illusion, and matter is an illusion. It's all one field of energy. Okay, okay. Yeah, but um, uh, don't you find it interesting, though, that, for example, um, our eyes are in, in finally in tune to see sim the visible light, and also our ears are, in a way, able to to um, listen to the the balance by which uh, music is uh, can be formed. So I, I would I, I'm I'm trying to argue through aesthetics that in terms of being a an illusion, it seems to be a very very good illusion. For example, I also would uh, reference mathematics and and logic. How would you uh, approach that? Okay, so my question is that um, if the universe is simply an illusion. But why do you think it's such a finely tuned illusion? That's that's all like asking why is there vibration? Because everything is a vibration, right? Uh, waves of of sound are vibrations. Waves of light are very fine vibrations. Uh, sensory, you know, kinetic sensations are are vibrational. But ultimately, ultimately, it comes down to the vibrations of particles and waves. Vibration of particles. Uh, oh, you got me there. I don't. I don't know how to answer to aesthetics, though. So uh... Yeah, but uh, uh, but uh, anyways, uh, it's been. Uh, I, I I really have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm sure. <laughs> but um. Well, that's okay. But, yeah, it's there's nothing wrong with not knowing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I I really uh, I, I loved it to talk about uh, this, and I'm actually gonna dive into some research about this. Okay, but um, I I want to I want to also uh, dive into your other perspectives, right? So, uh, being a monist, um, how does that also um, affect I, your political stance? I see through the conflict in ways that other people can't. I, I see how political opposition um, can lead to something better. In you know, like like a Hegelian kind of dialogue, uh, side pushing against another. And, uh, towards attacking as a chip does in the wind, going to, from the left to the right, the left to the right, but ultimately going in one pole. Yes. As a yes. dialectically. Um, as a dialectic. I don't know much about Hegel, though. I, that's about all I know. Okay. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, Yeah, but um, okay. So, I I I I I I understand what you what you said. I, okay, but um, this is really this is I think the most important part of it. Um, you're a monist, so everything comes naturally, and the universe is is conscious, right? So, um, in terms of, for example, love for your family, or your uh, abidance for truth. Uh, is there such a thing um, in your worldview? Well, I world consider view? truth to be in levels or degrees of verifiability. And the first is 
mathematics, pure mathematics on a page, conceptual math, not applied, that is either true or it's false. Um, and then the next level would be experimental uh, or logical would be the next one. Either something is true or it's false uh, and based on premises and conclusions. But the, there's more variability because you have to form premises and then you have to draw conclusions. And sometimes you can be off if your premises are not correct, um, or you can be off if you're not if your conclusions cannot be drawn from the premises. Um, I often see this on the Philosopher's Cafe uh, webpage on Facebook people not setting up the premises, not, not drawing conclusions from the, uh, established premises. Uh, drives me crazy a little bit. Um, the third one would be experimental, laboratory evidence, and then of course you can see why uh, you have to run lots of experiments in order to get a sufficient amount of information to form a verifiable conclusion. The fourth one would be statistical, and this is applied mathematics, and uh, this would be in the behavioral sciences, political sciences. You have to have a tremendous amount of data and compile the data. Uh, let's say, for example, with COVID-19, there's there's the experimental data, which is in the laboratory, but then in the population, you have different models. And then coming together with a public policy, you have to have a consensus among scientists. And that is a statistical average of what the scientists are all saying. If 97% of the scientists are saying you need to wear masks, then you probably should put on a mask. Um, if 97% if of the scientists are saying hydroxychloroquine does not cure this, then it's probably true. That I, and so that's applied mathematics. That's number four. Number five would be historical truth, and the verifiability of historical truth is is more vague because you have to compile a lot of data, and it's all each bit of data is hearsay. It's one person's uh, account compared with another person's account compared with another person's account. But all those accounts together form a picture, which is somewhat more or less true but it doesn't have the same degree of accuracy as the previous examples. And then the next one would be literary or poetic. And literature or storytelling has a kind of truth to it that people really connect with and find meaning in, but it isn't, you know, uh, the truth of Star Wars and its metaphors is not something you can necessarily base your life upon although you can get something out of it that enriches your life and makes your life more meaningful in a way that is true, but it's not true in the sense that pure math is true on a page. One plus one equals two. Luke and Leah, they're brother and sister, right? It's just a story. But there's, you know, the, there's the force, and the force is, is there's a good side and there's a bad side. Does that mean it's true? Eh, kind of yes, kind of no. It, it's a metaphor. Yeah, so um, 
uh, I want to ask you the last two questions. Uh, the the first one is in terms of monism, in terms of love for love, just love, and then uh, I would I would ask the second that later. Well, there's four different kinds of love according to the Greeks. There's agape, which is uh, selfless, self-sacrificing love. There's uh, storge, which is the love that you have for your brother, or your sister, uh, or parent for a child, a child for the parent. Uh, there's philos, yeah, philio, which is uh, you know for for your fellow human beings. And then there's eros, which is sexual love. Um, but I, I assume that you're referring to philos, love, uh, or in the or in the English sense, perhaps. Uh, in the English sense, it's it's adaptable. Um, it, it goes back to the moral code of what you know. Why do we do something or not do something? It's it primarily because it's the kind of world we want to live in, but also because we're wired for it. And in some sense, sometimes it's good to encourage that wiring through oxytocin, the, the hormone of love and, uh, and, and connection. And sometimes it's, it's useful not to because there's an outside threat. Your tribe is being threatened by another tribe and you have to do something about it. And so you have your your hormones respond differently, and there's not so much oxytocin for the invading tribe. You need to kill them, and so you're not showing them love, unless you interpret that as your violence towards another. It, it is love for that which is saved. In other words, the passion of warfare can be interpreted as passion for one's loved ones uh, in a love of one one's country. So love could, in this regard, could be expressed violently and, and love could be expressed tenderly. The, the question comes down to what is the thing that's loved and is it lovable, is it, does it have value? We, that's what we love, is the value, whether whether we respond positively or negatively, depending on the circumstance. Okay, and uh, one last question, Stevens. It's been uh, great uh, talking to you. I've learned so much. Um, the last question is, uh, being a monist uh, and uh, you sharing this worldview to the world, um, what advice or what good change or difference can one make to make this world uh, a better place. Well, it makes me think of the quote. Uh, I don't know where it originates, but um, instead of um, instead of asking what the world needs, ask yourself what gets you enthusiastic and, and excited and passionate. Because what the world needs is people who are enthusiastic and excited and passionate. And for me, right now, it's writing. I'm writing my third book, uh, my third novel, uh, and it's the mythology of King Arthur, but it's based in Native America. And I'm working on my second draft. I should be done in 10 days. I'll get back in touch with you on that. But, uh, yeah, I think being passionate about something 
to the point where time seems to stop when you're doing it and you, it's all you can think of when you're away from it gives meaning to your life and it's a good kind of meaning that the world appreciates even if it's not the same kind even if it's not you know serving your country or saving the forests uh, maybe it's just maybe it's playing chess I'm not interested in chess so much but I have uh, I have a, a tremendous respect for them does that make sense So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.